everybody, welcome to episode 127 of Literary Disco, Killers of the Flower Moon. Today, we're talking about David Grant's gripping nonfiction book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI. It's a twisted tale of oil, oil money, frontier justice, poison, undercover agents, courtroom dramas, people blown up while they're sleeping in their beds, and white supremacy. <laughs> I am actor, filmmaker, oh writer God. strong. Joining me as always, novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hello. Hey. I'd like to get three teenagers on to talk about this book. Oh, is that just going to become our thing? <laughs> Anytime we read a book that we think yes. is important, we just make some high schoolers in America read it and talk to us. <laughs> Actually, that would be, I mean, that's basically what kids react is, right? Like those YouTube channels where it's just right. taking people and be like, watch this. What do you think of the Beatles, kid? <laughs> we should just do that with literature. Anyone could have been Ringo. But this is like, this is one of those books, before we actually start talking about it, where you like kind of get like zombie swirly eyes and then just can't stop telling people about it. I was like, yes. hey, mm-hmm. hey, did you know this happened? Did you know about this? Did you know about this? For like a week afterwards... At least, and I also read it. It's probably the only nonfiction book of this style that I've ever read in one sitting. Like 350 oh, wow. reported mm. pages. I read it like it was a Sweet Valley High novel. <laughs> I um, I both read it and listened to the audiobook because I didn't want to be without it when I was driving someplace for 15 oh, yeah. minutes. And it's narrated by um, Will Patton, who does who's awesome. He's my favorite... Um, other than writer, he's my favorite. Well, he's book Stephen King's guy, right? Of, so he does like every Stephen yeah. King book now. He's just Incredible. awesome. But hey, before we get to this, uh, what's going on in all of our lives, Julia? What have you been doing um, since last we spoke? Well, I mean, I've got this kid that I'm carting around, and she's pretty cool. <laughs> Um, but on a li- I got this kid. On a literary note, our um, friend from Bennington, Megan Mayhew Bergman, uh, runs the Breadloaf Environmental Writers uh, Retreat. I was going to say getaway. That's not right. right. And at the last minute, she had invited me to go. I'd like it to. I'd like it to be a couple's getaway at Breadloaf. <laughs> hey, resex up your relationship with some erotic environmental poetry (laughs) well she had like suggested that i get up there and i did end up going up for a couple days two weekends ago and i had never been there and it is so beautiful it's like the most new englandy vermonty setting ever you can walk to robert frost summer cabin there's all these beautiful hiking trails and then of course like a bunch of uh, literary nerds going to lectures and readings, just like a super mini, mini, mini MFA program. But environmental right. writers are like even more insane because they're all like, the planet's dying. We're all dying. <sighs> oh, <laughs> so no. it's both a completely beautiful vibe and like the most like anxious and depressive vibe at the same time. So I was really glad I went. It was it was actually really, really cool. I heard some great lectures about environmental writing and social justice and things like that. So, yeah, it was like a total vacation for me. Just went up to Vermont, and Vermont's so beautiful in the summer. Yeah, and Maggie Mayhew Bergman is, is awesome. It's great that she landed on her feet with that job because she had another job, and they didn't treat her mm. right. We won't speak to no, that. No, but they... She seems to be a great fit for bread loaf itself. Ryder, you would love it. I was thinking of you the whole time. Oh, I'm, I know I would. How do you get to bread loaf? Do you have to like 
win some award or be asked, invited for some crazy So reason? there's, I, yeah, I learned a lot about this. So there's Big Bread Loaf, which is like their major program. And that, yes, is very <laughs> super only. prestigious. Yeah. I, big Bread Loaf, which also controls the all the corn <laughs> in the country. <laughs> Um, but then there's all these other smaller programs, um, Ryder. Like, this one was literally just, like, five days. Um, and there's, at the same time, there was a translation program, which, and those people are, like, a hundred times cooler. Um, like, they're all, like, I'm translating modern Japanese short stories. And then the person next to them was, like, I'm translating ancient Greek that's never been in English before. And I'm, like, I like science, (laughs) I think. Um, Have you seen the pictures of the celebrities in Us Weekly? They're just like us. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Ryder, it was cool. You should look up. I haven't actually looked that deeply into it, but like there's a literary criticism Mm -hmm. summer program, I think. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, they're really smart. It's a historic campus that was given to Middlebury, and they just use the shit out of it for different writing programs and English programs. Um, so I think some of them are, you know, full semesters and some of them are like, I know a teenager who just went to for a teen writing program. So they're really doing it. That's somebody is doing a good job. Someone. (laughs) Well, speaking of residencies, I just got back from my, uh, MFA residency just a couple days ago and it was awesome. Um, two weeks in, well, 10 days in the broiling hot sun of the desert, um, but I'm all, I always leave residency, and so people, if you go back and listen to episodes, let's see, this is 126 or something, um, if you divide that by five, so if you go and you listen to episode, like, 20 and 40 and 60 and 80, yeah, um, you'll hear me say the same thing. I always come back so, well, really, really super tired, but also really emboldened by the idea that words matter and that people are writing important stuff and that what we do as artists, you know, is... is an important part of the American culture. So that, that is all awesome. But the best part for me, actually, this residency is, um, we brought out Robin Benway, who won the national book award for YA fiction this year, um, for her book, far from the tree, which is absolutely awesome. Um, but she had such an interesting story. I mean, I, am friends with Robin, so I've known her for, for many years, but she was one of those writers that just had, you know, like a really good career. She'd published five or six books. Um, she had a nice audience. You know, she was just a nice career. And then all of a sudden, she writes this book that transcends everything else she's ever written. She wins the National Book Award, and all of a sudden, it pulls her into this entire other stratosphere mm. as a writer. Um, and so we talked a lot about what that's like and, and how she's dealing with that. But the book also came from a really dark place, which is that she didn't think she was going to keep writing anymore. She, you know, she wasn't making a lot of money. Things just weren't working out. She was in sort of a depressed place, and this book came from that depressed place. And all of a sudden, there it is. You know, she's huge. Yeah. Um, and so that was really inspiring for the students. It was inspiring for the professors. It was inspiring for me. Um, but it also just like that. I, I was thinking about this in terms of music and movies and stuff too. And like, is it is it unique to books where you have that breakout, like t- you know, twenty years into your career, um, or like is there an equivalent of an actor who spent 
30 years as a character actor and then blew up. Um, I guess oh, maybe yeah, tons. like oh, yeah. that guy from Whiplash, right? So J.K. Mm-hmm. Simons, who won the Academy Award. Simmons, yeah. Simmons, yeah. So, or maybe Simons. I don't know how to pronounce it, yeah. But, I mean, I was thinking about the, like, so there's some for actors, um, but musicians, like, are there a ton of musicians that put out 10 records and then their 11th is huge? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Are there? For musicians? I don't think so. I feel like music is so youth-centric, you know, right. like as a culture. There's such what? a tendency to devalue older musicians unless they've already had, like, a huge success. You don't think this is true? No. I think there are artists in every discipline who operate on a low level for a really long time and then jump up. I mean, mm. I'm not as into music as you guys are, but I think you're thinking too high of the lower level. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like mm-hmm. they've produced 10 albums, but maybe they've been playing gigs in bars for five years before they get produced. Yeah, but right, Robin but... Robin had published five books with major presses, and she was just, she was a known quantity, but she wasn't that thing, you know? There've got to be musicians. There, Like, that has to be. <laughs> it's not like everybody's like, well, I gave Goo-goo it my dolls. three tries, and that's it. <laughs> You know, I'm thinking maybe it's just the Goo Goo Dolls and Soul Asylum. <laughs> uh, I feel like with musicians, more often what happens is you have huge success early on, like your premier, you know, your debut album is incredible, and then you sort of fall into a low grade, like working musician lifestyle, and then maybe right. you could have another hit. Yeah. But like somebody who's been like a low grade working musician and not broken out by the time they're like in their 30s. No, like I don't think that that really happens, unfortunately. I mean, I would love it to be proven wrong, but I just feel like we we sort of, you know, we like our musicians young. Yeah, it's true. So anyway, um, I had a great time at the residency and I feel emboldened to uh, sleep a lot for (laughs) the rest of this month. And um and then get to work. So I'm, I got to get to work this summer on the concluding volume of my gangster series. So I'll be doing that. Yeah. What's it going to be called? I don't know yet. I don't know. Gangster Planet? I'm thinking Gangster Multiverse to keep it, you know, <laughs> for the world later <laughs> once I'm gone. I don't know. We'll figure it out. I'm, I, I'm toying with the idea of leaving Gangster out of the title um, just to really uh, confuse everyone. Um, I don't know. I haven't decided yet. But I also have to, I also have to write the damn thing. So there's that. Um, there's that. But I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited for it. What have you been doing, writer? Uh, nothing. Just trying to, you know, get a feature film off the ground. So lots of behind the scenes meetings and work and hustling and going out to cast and trying to get a schedule and a budget. And you know, it's it's an entrepreneurial life. It's a, an artistic entrepreneurial life, and it's really exhausting. But, <laughs> but you're doing what you want and to do. And no, there's no end in sight. You never know when it's actually going to happen until the cameras are rolling. But right now, it's right. all looking good, you know, of course. But so basically, this this movie could be your Robin Benway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a lifestyle. What a lifestyle. Stressful. So we'll revisit this conversation in six months' time and see where you are. Yeah. Let's hope I'm filming. <laughs> I've got to um, I'm filming, too. That would be nice. <laughs> All right, so uh, David Gran is a journalist. Uh, he's a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of um, the book The Lost City of Z. And in The Killers of the Flower Moon, he dives into a story that I feel like we all should know, but I don't think many of us do. No. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, the people of the Osage Nation uh, had been forced onto lands 
that also just so happened to be incredibly productive oil fields. So this made them the richest people per capita in the world. And um, when members of the tribe started to die in mysterious circumstances, um, there was nowhere to turn for justice because it seemed that all the local lawmen, the local politicians, local businessmen, they were all either in on their murder plot or they were being bribed to stay quiet. So in steps the federal government. (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible. Um, So in steps the federal government, um, uh, an agent named Tom White, and he is a member of the newly formed Bureau of Investigation, which would eventually become the FBI. Um, And what we get is an incredible, incredible book that recounts the crime, then solving the crime or attempts to solve the crime, and then the courtroom drama, and um, finally ends with a section uh, in first person where David Grant discusses how he sort of came across this story and um, the revelations he had even after uh, investigating this story for many, many years. Um, what'd you guys think? Um, awesome. <laughs> but the actually, best before, book. <laughs> before we talk about this, for just one sec, I want to talk about The Lost City of Z. Uh-huh. Um, I ran across The Lost City of Z on cable. They did a film version of it that came out a year and a half ago. And I thought it was going to yeah. be some sort of like rollicking adventure movie that was going to have some sort of zombie somewhere in there. Yeah, I thought it was going to be zombies. <laughs> it is not. It is an amazing story that Robert Pattinson is the star of, of a, the most unlikely person to go into the Amazon and find a lost city. It is absolutely amazing. I can't wait to read the book just a totally underrated film from last year, like a solid B-plus movie that I don't yeah. think a lot of people saw. Um, but anyway, absolutely love this book. I loved it so much, I went through and I read all of the um, source stuff in the back, too. So all of his notes where he, um, like, like <laughs> where he's saying, like, where I got this quote and that quote from, I read that like it was... Um, a detective novel as well. Absolutely loved it. Just a horrifying, horrifying um, misuse of justice all the way through. Uh, I mean, even the FBI investigation was hampered by widespread corruption. And then by the end of the book, you realize that what people went to prison for was just a quarter of what this vast conspiracy was against these people. An amazing book. Absolutely amazing. I felt like the way that it was this is such a non-fiction writer comment but the way that it was arranged was so brilliant that it blew my mind because you enter the book and you're like okay we're solving this one crime this one Mm -hmm. specific horrific like we're in serial territory like one very interesting true crime moment And then it just keeps unfolding and unfolding and mentioning people and walking back until you realize that, you know, half the people you've met are going to die or have died. Uh, Are involved. True crime, you know, it's a true crime story that turns into a social justice story. And, like, what a hook. What a hook to get people who are interested in this kind of salacious media um, involved in the book, but then turn them and totally convince them to see what it, like how horrific these crimes against native Americans were. I mean, I just thought that was like, he could have opened by 
kind of laying out the whole scope or right. making it seem like it was going to be some big social justice work. But instead, he reveals that through very, like, basically entertainment. Um, and I just thought that was so amazing. So amazing. Right. Yeah. And then there's also this, this, I mean, you know, right in my sweet spot as a writer, this fascinating shift of law enforcement from yes. these old west cowboys yeah. into the modern day FBI. Even yeah. like there's a moment where the, the main FBI agent that we meet, this guy named Tom White, like there's a moment where it's revealed that he's gone from wearing a cowboy hat yes, to, yes. Um, to a Stetson. And you're like, oh my God, it's, you know, it's the encroachment of modernity on these old school lawmen. Um, absolutely amazing. But, and here's the other thing that we'll probably never talk about again. It is filled <laughs> with amazing photos. Like every single person in this book, there should not be photos of them. There's photos of all of them. And they look amazing. And they like, look exactly <laughs> like you would cast it, yes. right? I mean, the, the, you're reading the book, especially like Hale, this character, of oh my God. Hale, who turns out to be a one villain. of them, you know, a villain. But when you first meet him, he's not. But he's just every photo of him. He's got these little glasses. He looks like the villain from um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. You know? And you're just like, and it's and everything you read is like he was charming. He showed up in his suit, and everybody loved him. And you're just like, oh. And you look at the photos, and you just see right. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I, I found the photos because I started listening to this on audiobook too, and I was really glad when I started reading the actual book to be able to see the photos because that's a, yeah. it was a, a really nicely integrated part of the book. But yeah, I mean, what you're saying, Todd, is exactly right. Like, those transitions, it starts as a Western and then mm. becomes a noir. Yeah. Right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. almost, yes. and, and, and then becomes a social justice. It's like, the layers are perfect because, and, and with each each section of the book, it's, um, you know, because, it, like I said, it becomes, it becomes a courtroom scene when it enters the social justice territory. And it's like, wow, why, I, I'm suddenly in a whole different book and I already know, I think I, the, the crime's already been solved, but I'm still on the edge of my seat every page. It's just incredible. It is so well organized, yeah. like you said, Julia. It, it's perfectly laid out. This, this, could, this couldn't be better structured. Yeah. No, it, and, and it's, it's also structured as an argument. You know, like everything is being set up for the courtroom scene also so that we get all the evidence um, and then we're... we're it's laid out in such a complex way that then when the, it gets to the courtroom, it, it's a little bit of, you know, to kill a mockingbird style, the stuff that's going on in there, right. um, which is pretty amazing in and of itself. You know, what, what I found um, also extraordinarily compelling and sad is that I had absolutely no idea yes. of the existence of the Osage tribe, of this battle that they went through of this oil issue nothing i mean this is a this was in the 1920s a huge story and a fundamental story about the treatment of these people and completely lost to history because it's it's a small town tale of people that we have been um oppressing since you know since we arrived here um but it's also it, it it paints americans in such a disgusting light that it's no wonder it's been hidden from view all this time, you know? Yeah, I had no idea that, for example, uh, the Osage were the most wealthy people per capita in the world. World. Yeah. In the world. That's part of American history. 
Um, and, like, one thing that I also found, like, both embarrassing and, like, this is, to me, the recipe for nonfiction that people love. Like, this, in a way, reminded me of Devil in the White City. Is like, I had no idea that these things intersected. Like, of course the oil rush and, you know, moving Native Americans would intersect. And, of course, right. like, cowboys and FBI and, like, this history of law enforcement would intersect with all these things um but i had just never you know thought about how the way that those things would come together um Mm. and so it's just such a rich like portrait of a period in american history that we've collectively buried because it's so horrible yeah it's um it's also you know it's it's what a real accomplishment of this book is it's really character focused you Mm -hmm. know he, he, he focuses on um like for instance the the first third of the book really is focused on this woman Molly who turns out to be one of the sort of central Osage that is being terrorized um, because her family members are being killed off one by one and it seems at some point she's being poisoned herself and she and her sisters and um, you know these these family members that make up this extensive you know this this tribe that is sharing the rights to the oil so they're all becoming incredibly wealthy but they're also um they, they can't take care of their own finances legally because they're not considered real people because they're not white. And so they're, you know, they're assigned a, what's the, fir- the phrase? Of, uh, there's like a caretaker, basically. A caretaker, is, yeah. They need, they basically, in, a guardian. in order for the federal, a guardian. a guardian, there you go, for the federal government and the state government, for any government system to recognize that they can write checks or receive their money, they had to have a white person who was officially vouching for them. And it's just so like, but by the time that concept is introduced, you've already been introduced to the characters so thoroughly, and you know you, you know about their lives and their family relationships and their desires and their fears, and then you get this and their and the fact that they have this money and this oil, and you feel like they deserve it, and then you get that little fact thrown in, you're like, what? And then it sort of builds to see how they were dehumanized, um, you know. But the, the book itself has already begun humanizing them as fully fledged people, and then the same thing with. The villains and the law mm-hmm. characters that, that that emerge through this book. He is so good at painting this picture of of, of Hale, who turns out to be the main villain, but um, also just all these random bootleggers and uh, and then all these corrupt sheriffs and law people that come through and rodeo and, clowns. Uh, <laughs> he's really and he's really uh, he's really going after. He's really trying to figure out if these were good people or not. Like, that's mm-hmm. what I like about David Grant's yeah. book, his writing itself, is, like, not only does he present, like, Tom White, who ends up sort of being the main agent and the, the, the kind of the hero of the story, he presents him, but he also, like, he goes back into his family history, he talks mm-hmm. about him as this person, and he's sort of trying to say, like, this is this is a, a, a hero. This guy was a hero in this situation, and he really dives deep into that question. He doesn't just say he was a hero and accept it. He sort of goes through, like, and then he did this, and then he did this thing, and each yeah. each step of the way, you're like, wow, this guy really was, you know, he really believed in all, he was, he was a mm-hmm. Boy Scout. He was a cowboy in, like, the ultimate sort of good sense of that word, and then the same way he investigates people like Hale, who just, you know, you realize as the, the, the onion layers get peeled back how horribly corrupt this person is. But when you first meet him, it's like, oh, he's a successful businessman. He's friends with the Osage. He's the white guy who really gets along with them. Oh, he mm. must be a good guy. And then he just peels that back throughout the story. And, and you realize how much, how many people were able to exist in America, you know, all throughout our history, but especially at a moment like this, under the guise of... Um, 
legitimacy, you know, by right. being sort of lost right. in bureaucracy or, you know, just by virtue of being white and having money, they were able to hide and, and get away with murder almost constantly. There, it seems there's, like. this, there's a great um, quote here. This is on page um, 167 of the book, if you're reading at home, um, where one of the uh, Osages is, is talking to a reporter about this issue with the guardians and, and the abuse that these people are facing. And it, it's happened after uh, a woman, uh, her baby got sick, but they wouldn't give her the money to take care of the baby. The guardian wouldn't give the native woman uh, uh, the money, and the baby died. And so he says to the Osage says to the reporter, "Your money draws them, and you're absolutely helpless. They have all the law and all the machinery on their side. Tell everybody when you write your story that they're scalping our souls out here." Yeah, that's an amazing. Woo. Um, and 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 can I just draw a, a quick parallel? Yeah. Like when you see, um, when you see like the utter buffoonery of these crooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Hale, the the main guy, is is actually a, a criminal genius. Everyone that he works with are just the lowest level twits that have ever committed a crime in their life. Yeah, they're poisoning um, people. They're shooting people. They're so they're stupid. They're blowing up houses. But yeah. you see that it's led by hubris at the top that I can get away with anything because I have money. And yeah, so yep. he hires he hires just morons to do his bidding, and then is surprised when they get caught. I don't know if any of you have been watching the news lately, <laughs> but like it's it's you know it's the Godfather, but he only employs Fredos basically, and, and, and it's the same thing here. It's just feckless morons doing a rich man's bidding in hopes that they'll get a little bit of cash. But also getting away with it right. because they're able to exploit that that line between morality and legality, right? Right. Like what's happening right. right now with immigrants in this country? It's like, well, we're, we're just following the law. And it's right. like, what? Oh, no, you're deciding to enforce something that you think you, you have to acknowledge is morally despicable, but they're able to exploit that sort of weird spot. Like, who's going to enforce this? Who's going to be the, you know? And that's the, the question that this book is asking is like, who's going to be the good guy in this situation? And it's right. so hard to be the good guy. It's so much easier to, to just turn your back on this corruption or allow people to, you know, die under mysterious circumstances. Whoops, who knows? They were just Indians. Who cares? And, like, you know, throughout history, it's it's this moment that, that this book is focused on. It's like, who's going to do this? And right. in this in this book, in this story, it ends up being the federal government, which turns out to be a, a wonderful success story for what the FBI can be, right? Like, we, the FBI yeah. can be a force of, of, of non-local... Uh, objective law enforcement and that's right. what like a situation like this needed um, but you know they're just fortunate that white stepped into the situation and said okay I need to you know I'm going to treat these human lives equally under equal under the law and figure this out and that's mm-hmm. just you know that seems like such an obvious leap to us now but in 1925 people weren't making that leap um, and well, even even Hoover comes <laughs> off like almost even-handed <laughs> like yeah. J. Edgar Hoover, one of the most corrupt people in the history of American government. Like in 1925, seems okay. Like, all right, like he might be fine. Well, I think his mission, and this was what, you know, this is the birth of the FBI. And I think it is true that that the idea behind the FBI, we can all kind of get behind. Right. You know, it's it, now it seems obvious that it was necessary. But um, at the time, you know, yeah, his mission and, and detective work, like the very notion of sleuthing and, 
and fingerprinting and all the yeah. things we now take for granted um, back then had to be fought for. And the fact that he was fighting for those techniques is pretty awesome. But yeah, he's really corrupt cool. as, as hell on his own right. Yeah, and he, I mean, he had his own motives and that he wanted a big success story, right? I mean, I think the lesson of this book, you know, is that the only thing that trumps money is power. Um, and it doesn't matter how much money the Osage had, you know, uh, in theory, because with all that power and privilege, it was almost impossible to save their own selves, even when they knew it was happening, you know? Um, and I just yeah. thought that was so amazing. I have a side note. This is the point at which I texted Todd, like, oh, my God. There oh my are God. so <laughs> many incredible things that are, like, Ooh. Agatha Christie level. Um, yes, Vega, she's excited. Um, oh, so- we forgot to tell the listeners. We have, we're joined today <laughs> by a, another guest host. We're going not to high school but a little earlier, we're joined by Vega, <laughs> Julia's daughter today. She's sitting in my lab at the moment. Um, she has some ideas on this. But there's this moment where it's just so, like, how this even happened is so incredible. So they, like, uh, the FBI hires some, like, you know, witness idiot, as Todd was describing, to, like, figure out who this third man was in this particular crime and he's like undercover and he's a double agent and they eventually find out that he himself was the third man <laughs> and that he agreed to do this um knowing that he's like searching for himself which is like so incredible you know like it's, what it's like twist. no way out you know, like you're waiting for that TV to show up with, with yeah. um, Costner in the picture. <laughs> yeah, and I, it was just like this, oh man, it was so mind-blowingly weird. And that's what's great about yeah. it. Yeah, there, there were a ton of huge coincidences that, that came out. I mean, what, what the book initially examines essentially is about ten murders, um, all tied to one line of this uh, particular family um but then by the time the book is over that investigation also includes the murder of people investigating it the murder of people who were witnesses and then by the end of the book also you find out that what you thought was this enclosed period of time where this guy hale was killing these people so that eventually in essence he would inherit all of their oil um is that it was going on far before this guy hale got in that involved tons of other people and institutions and banks and all this stuff and that they only really caught one portion of this vast conspiracy to defraud this tribe of their rightfully earned money well Um, right and that's when like where it seems like a detective novel where you're like ooh red herrings and all the suspects and da 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 like the killer is white privilege literally it's like literally everyone exactly it's literally everyone it's a system it's a systemic dehumanizing right (laughs) yeah Yeah. um so every single person you suspect is involved everyone right and Um, the, the last portion of the book um which is david grand's first person accounting so it's about 50 or 60 pages and it is it is shoe leather investigative reporting um, so you get this great book of 250 pages or whatever of of grand parsing these historical documents. And I just sounded like uh, Galaxy Quest. The historical <laughs> documents. Um, <laughs> um, but parsing through all these, these documents and telling this extraordinary tale. 
And then you get him essentially interviewing um, the living descendants of all these people and, and, and finding out that there was more to the story and then revealing these crimes that were never prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, and these people that were... Like, and, like, I had forgotten about this big crime that happened, which is this man who um, was investigating these murders. He had told his wife that he had secret information and, and to bury it inside the house. And then he went to Washington, D.C. or something. Oh, yeah. And, and was murdered by being thrown off of a train on the way home. And then when the wife went to go look for the secret documents, the secret documents had been stolen from the house already. And that happens, like, you know, in the first 50 pages of the book. And, like, you sort of forget about it. And then you, by the end of the book, you're like, yeah, who did kill that guy? What did happen? Right, they never solved that. whole other part. mystery. Yeah. White privilege yeah. killed him. White privilege killed him. Exactly. Um but so it's essentially like there's this book has a little bit of something for everyone. Um, it's got it's got the procedural mystery, it's got the historical mystery, it's got the um, the courtroom drama, and then it's got yeah. badass investigative reporting um, that will leave you literally breathless. Like I, by the end of this book, I was like, <gasps> "That's me being." Breathless. This is the most recommended book. I've- <laughs> All year, like I, I've I've been recommending this book since I started reading it like a month ago to everybody. It's mm-hmm. like one of those like no brainers. Oh no no, everyone should read this. This is yeah. just you're gonna love it. You're gonna love it no matter who you are. Um, and the other thing that I think for the the um, the young writers out there that listen to the show, man, this is a masterclass on uh, assimilating research into a book. Yes, every yes. single line of this book is research. And he ties it in with a fantastic narrative voice um, that makes it, you know, read like everything is fresh and new, even though it's it's all been out there. If you wanted to look, if you wanted to find it, um, yeah. I just I, I don't know how he did it. It's sort of in a way, it reminds me a bit of Columbine, um, mm-hmm. and not just because we we just recently read it, but it's it's this acquiring of information about people, tying it to this vast crime. And then imprinting a larger social role on top of it. Yeah. Um, and it's in its relationship to the present day and the corruption that we're facing every single day is is real. But also the systematic oppression of Native Americans. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, maybe I see it more often because I live essentially on Indian land uh, here in Palm Springs. And so the tribes are a big part of daily life here. Um, but I don't I don't know if if you're living in somewhere else, if you even think about it all that often, but I think about it all the time. Um, it's so it was, it was pretty amazing. And now we can't wait for the incredible movie that's going to be adapted from this. I was like, Oh, this is going to be a series, right? I was like, yeah. this is going to be like an HBO three season, but no, it's Scorsese. He's Scorsese into DiCaprio. Yeah, doing which it. I'm on board for whatever. I, I think oh, it'll be man. I just, I wanted it to be a series. Cause I'm like, I want to spend time with like, at one point, you know, when White first takes over the investigation, starts the investigation, he has to find undercover, like, people. He has to, like, assemble the team. Oh. And they still don't even... He doesn't even name yeah. them in the book. Band. Because they, yes. I don't even know if they still are named. Because it's like, one of them was a, an ex-sheriff, yeah. for, you know, from Texas, who then, like, pretended to be a cattle rancher moving into the area. Another guy was, like, pretending right. to be an insurance salesman. You're like, this is, this is like, a whole season of its own show. Just this section. And then you could do a whole season yes. just in the courtroom. Like... The fact that they're going to try and do it all in one movie, I'm like, uh, I don't know. But it's amazing. Well, 
And I, I hope that DiCaprio, if he actually ends up staying attached to it, does not play the lawman. I hope he, of course I hope he, will. he plays yeah. the, I want him yeah. to be the villain. I want him to be Hale. Or he could just reprise his role as Hoover, right? Right. He could be Hoover again. <laughs> just, that's true. Just put him in the old age makeup. Oh, no, wait. He'll be young Hoover, so he doesn't need to. Uh, young Hoover. So bad. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think Scorsese makes a lot of sense to do this. Um, but, I mean, like, this would have to be a seven-hour movie to encapsulate all the stuff. But yeah, Ryder, you know, to go back to what you were saying, like, there are sentences that are like, well, then the insurance guy came to town. He set up a life insurance building and he went door to door and learned people's names and got familiar with them by trying to sell them insurance policies. And that's like three lines. And I'm like, that is, I would watch that mm-hmm. as a movie for three hours. Yeah, that's the plot of it. All these informants moving into this territory. There's three of them, and they're all lying about who they are to try and gain information because the, it, everyone's so corrupt in the in the territory. It's just, oh, I love it. Well, let me let me just give a little example example for the uh, listeners of just a minor character in this um, who plays you know somewhat significant role. But this is on page ninety five. Uh, Henry Grammer was a rodeo star who had performed at Madison Square Garden and had been crowned the steer-roping champion of the world. He was also a train robber, a (laughs) kingpin bootlegger with connections to the Kansas City mob and a blazing gunman. The poorest legal system seemed unable to contain him. In 1904 in Montana, he gunned down a sheep shearer, yet he received only a three-year sentence. In a later incident in Osage County, a man came into the hospital bleeding profusely from a gunshot wound moaning, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He fingered Grammar as his shooter, then passed out. But when the victim woke up the next day and realized that he wasn't going to the Heavenly Lord, at least not anytime soon, he insisted that he had no idea who had pulled the trigger. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. I mean, this guy could be his own movie. Yeah. And then you see a, a picture of him and he looks like a Hollywood star, this guy. Or, I mean, and then the third guy is the Native American who, like, the only Native American in the FBI, which, like, what's the deal with that and all these different right. missions that he had to go on and, like, how many different tribes he had to go undercover in. Like, whoa, yeah. what what a story that is, too. And, of course, they needed that person, you know? Yeah, and, and the government didn't trust him, and he didn't like to fill out paperwork. Like, it's every cliche, also. It's like, he he was from the old school. He didn't type or listen. He did things on his own. <laughs> but he solved every single crime that came his way. Mm-hmm. Ah, it, I mean, it's just the coolest. I mean, it's hard It's hard to speak objectively about a book that is so good, but um, it was up for the National Book Award. It was a best book of the year by every single newspaper in America. Yeah. Even even Dave Eggers liked it in the New York Times book review. <laughs> um, but I heard a, a great interview with David Gran on um, on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and I know Ryder won't listen to it because of his avowed distaste for Miss Gross. Um, but if you're interested in what we have to talk about in this book, I absolutely recommend you go and listen to um, that interview. He was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. All right, do we have anything else we have to say about this brilliant book? No, just go, go out and yeah, go this read is, it. This is one of those boring episodes where we loved it, so we're just going to say thumbs up, everybody. Go I read guess, this book. Why I are guess, you still listening to us? Yeah, I would say, like, there's a few. This is one where I'm finally like, if you liked dot, 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 read this. So mm-hmm. I always have people asking me about, like, I liked Devil in the White City. What should I read? Read this. 
you know, and there's yeah. a lot of books that kind of touch in this direction. So if you've been like on the hunt, you know, I think grabbing this or even recommending it to other people is a very safe bet. If you were a horse girl, this is also your book. There's a lot of horses in this. There are, but they're not very friendly, you know? <laughs> they're not like... If you like... Actually, if you like Shawshank Redemption, this is also a book for you. A lot of cool prison stuff. Um, basically, if you like a love story, not the right book for you. Oh, that's true. It's not really a good love story. All the marriages are pretty no. sad. Yeah. People, when, uh, when husbands are trying to poison their wives and murder their entire family. Yeah. It turns out in a lot of cases, uh, in the, on, the, uh, on the path of the murders... Not a lot of true love. A lot of, a lot of, no. a lot of dip- well, maybe one true love, but the guy who blew up and the guy who blew up and actually it was faded because he blew. He died like three days after his wife, so therefore these people didn't get the money, which is another strange wrinkle. Oh, it's really cool. All right, people, just go, just go buy the book already. God, yeah. stop listening to us yammer on about it. They're probably not listening or, anymore listen to, anyway. Listen to the audiobook too, like. Really become a dedicated fan of the show and do exactly what Ryder and I did, which is read the book, like run to Costco, listening to Will Patton growl about the thing, <laughs> and then come home and read it again. Totally worthwhile. All right, everybody. So that's Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI by David Graham. Available at fine bookstores everywhere. We'll see you next time. Oh,